you might think the world of accounting is just numbers, decimals, spreadsheets. But what if I told you there was another kind of accountant? An accountant on the ground, in the fields, counting barrels of gold and hunting down the truth on millions of dollars that have disappeared into thin air. I'm Ari Kagan, and this episode of Things You Don't Need to Know is all about forensic accounting. That was my attempt at a government ad if they were trying to recruit people to be forensic accountants like they do for the army. Much like the army, I don't know what forensic accountants do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I get the basic idea. People in the army are fighting a literal war and accountants are fighting a numerical war. I just did my quarterly tax return, so I feel like that statement's justified. But there's a second part to forensic accountant, which is the forensic part. According to the dictionary, forensic means relating to or denoting the application of a scientific method or technique in the investigation of crime, which sounds like it could be pretty cool, but doesn't get me any farther on my quest to understand what the job consists of. So I sat down with Austin Tellum to tell me what it's all about. My name is Austin Tellum. I've been working in the fraud forensic accounting area for more than 15 years now. Forensic accounting is accounting to be used in some kind of litigation, in court, in, you know, some kind of investigation. All right, so I wasn't too far off. Forensic accountants are brought in when there's a specific allegation and you're testing and investigating a specific issue. Fraud, bribery, corruption, it's the holy trinity of white-collar crime. And then you have uh, forensic accountants that do like economic damages. So whenever businesses uh, break apart or there's partnership disputes and they try to figure out how much a company's worth. Forensic accounting is a huge field. So it depends what your specialty is. There's even forensic accountants that specialize in divorce. I was involved in one with a billionaire in, in Canada and it was just the nastiest thing I've ever seen. We'll get to hear that story and a bunch of others in a minute, but I feel like we're missing something. My accountant does my taxes. Austin, are you a certified public accountant? Most forensic accountants are also CPAs. I happen to not be. I know absolutely nothing about taxes. I use TurboTax. I couldn't tell you the first thing about it. What he does have is a master's in forensic accounting, a certification in fraud examination, internal auditing, and compliance and ethics, as well as an international business degree in Spanish. This made him a perfect candidate for his firm, South American branch. And South America in 2009 was a fascinating place to be a forensic accountant. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or FCPA, had been around since 1977, but it wasn't until the end of the first decade of the 21st century, that's like 2008-9, that the Justice Department started actually prosecuting foreign bribery by U.S. companies. So there was always cases in, at that time, Venezuela was a huge hotbed, Colombia, Argentina. Hundreds of companies were under investigation, and the rest were trying to figure out if they were at risk. The law encompassed all bribery, from cash to non-monetary gifts. For example, if you're an aircraft manufacturer and you're trying to get a contract from a foreign government for 30 jet fighters, you may need to pay off some officials. This is illegal for U.S. companies, and it's exactly what the Justice Department was cracking down on. Bribery in Latin America is not for the better, but is kind of a part of their culture. Businesses have come in and since they're regulated by the U.S. are are saying that we can't do business this way anymore, right? So you're investigating a lot of times people that think they're just doing things the way they need to be done to, to get a deal done. 
So it's definitely a different culture down there. You can't go in there just thinking you speak the language and, and you know, people will be accepting of you. You have to kind of uh, take into account what their daily lives are. Forensic accounting is as much about people as it is about numbers. You're an investigator. Before I get on the ground and before I talk to someone, I usually have reviewed, you know, their entire email history. If the company owns their cell phones, I've gotten copies of their cell phones and WhatsApp messages that go through. Um, I've reviewed any transactions they're involved in. So usually when I'm asking questions, I have the answers and I'm, I'm testing to see whether you're going to tell me the truth or not. I think by far the most interesting part of forensic accounting is these cases. So we're going to take a look at four of them. The first one takes place in Miami. So I was brought into what is one of the largest uh, gold refineries in the world, and it's run out of Hialeah, Miami. Their business model consisted of buying raw gold and silver, melting it down into bars, and then selling it to everyone from Tiffany to Apple computers. I worked on a case there basically where they had uh, $200 million in gold on their balance sheet in assets that they couldn't find. That's right. This company had lost $200 million in gold. So we were basically brought in to figure out, you know, what happened to the gold. Before you start thinking this is some elaborate heist, you should know that this refinery was incredibly secure. It had multiple metal detectors, an air blower. You couldn't get a gold chain out of that place, let alone 6,704 pounds of the stuff. It was basically a young guy was the head of the company. He inherited it from his dad. And he called us and he said, uh, we have no cash, like we can't pay anything. I have no idea what's going on because we're showing a profit, and um, but we have no money, so what's going on? After going through the books, Austin also couldn't figure out what was wrong, so he dug a little deeper. He started interviewing people within the company, and eventually he got to the CFO. And the CFO had like lost 20 pounds in the last two months because he was freaking out. And We find out exactly what he had done after the break. Before we cut to commercial, Austin was investigating a gold refinery that couldn't locate $200 million in gold. He'd started interviewing people within the company, and the CFO was freaking out. Austin was able to find out from him that the $200 million was a valuation placed on waste barrels that were currently in storage. He acknowledged, like, adjusting the valuation technique that he was using on the barrels. You know, at first they were valued at 100 mil, then 150 mil, and then 200 mil. And then it was like, okay, so what are these barrels sitting there in the corner? And how many are there? And what are they actually worth? No one's actually tested like the metal that's sitting in there. I was in a warehouse climbing on like uh, 50 gallon drums of liquid metal, basically counting them. I'm like, there's gotta be a better way, right? So we went to the warehouse manager and asked him to explain. And of course, like the, the warehouse manager knew exactly what barrels were what and like basically told me everything, right? It was interesting because when they first started refining metal, they were bad at it. The leftover waste that were in those barrels from like 1990 are worth a lot more than the barrels that were left over in 1995 because they got a lot better at it. The process of refining gold consists of washing it with various chemicals until it reaches 99.99% purity. This is the extraction waste that he's talking about. We found out that the CFO had valued that at $200 million and we took a couple cans and tested it and we found out that, you know, all the cans together were probably worth maybe a million dollars. If all those barrels were 1990 barrels, they probably would be worth $100 million. But they got so good at it by 1995, the leftover waste in those barrels was worth like nothing because they were able to extract all the gold out of them. They'd overstated their assets. 
And because of this, we're able to secure larger bank loans. When the banks found out about that, they called all the loans back because the, the loans were based on assets that they could collect on. When the banks called the loans, they didn't have any, any way to pay them back. They had to file for bankruptcy, and that was the end of it. I worked on a case. It was kind of a Ponzi scheme. This guy uh, named uh, Dreyer, he was a big-time lawyer in New York, and he was basically selling fake land deeds. Mark Dreyer was a prominent New York City lawyer, but that wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to be a billionaire. His plan to achieve this was to open his own law firm, where he was the sole partner. He would hire the best lawyers and attract the best clients. But Dreyer quickly realized he would need a lot more money to keep his firm in business. So he started a little scam. He would go around to hedge funds claiming to represent Sheldon Solos, a New York City real estate mogul who used to be one of his clients. He would then have them invest tens of millions of dollars into fabricated property developments with the promise of 7 to 12% returns. Unfortunately, even though his law firm occupied 10 floors of a Park Avenue office building, it never ended up making enough to meet these promises, so he had to keep finding new investors, and thus a Ponzi scheme was born. Before Madoff, that was the largest Ponzi scheme ever, and Madoff happened shortly after that. Here's an interesting little fact for you. Mark Dreyer's Ponzi scheme was for $400 million. Bernie Madoff's was $64.8 billion. Much like Madoff, the 0809 financial crisis spelled the end for his scam. He went to jail and had a bunch of assets lying around the, the world that we had to go collect. You know, this is public record, so I usually don't, don't talk about who it is, but this guy had a 150-foot yacht that he had in St. Martin at the time. And it was like two days before Christmas, and I got a call. It's like, Austin, we just got a call from the crew of the Seascape. They're stuck in St. Martin. They just saw that their boss got arrested. So he hopped on a flight to retrieve the yacht. You know, this is really making me think of my airplane repo episode. If you haven't listened to that, you should go check it out next. They sent me over with like a banker and like a Navy SEAL guy because there was a bunch of wine and artwork that needed to be inventoried to find out how much it was worth. We had to like sit there for a couple days to get fuel to take the yacht back. And then we sailed it back from St. Martin to Puerto Rico to Fort Lauderdale so the government could auction the yacht off. The yacht was valued at $18 million a mere 4.5% of the total scam. But I guess anything helps. In those type of large uh, fraud cases, the government hires a receiver. Basically a law firm that's responsible for finding all the assets and recovering them. And then the receiver usually hires you know, a big four accounting firm. They figure out what's going on with the books and potentially figure out what the recovered items are worth. You know, market research to try to figure out, you know, whether things are being hidden in Latin America or different places in the world. How do people usually hide these assets? Probably the, the biggest way people hide things is through uh, straw owners, proxy ownership, basically, where, okay, Ari Kagan, you own a 150-foot yacht, but I'm your cousin. I'm going to put it in your name. And so in my name, I own this yacht. You don't own anything. If an investigation's done or if you're a public official, right, you don't own anything. You don't have any assets. But at the end of the day, you look at what I do, and I'm a, a maintenance guy, but I own a 150-foot yacht. Definitely a huge red flag. This is often also done with plain old money. You know, trusts in the Bahamas that are under one company's name, and that company owns 10 LLCs over here, and those LLCs own 50 properties that are owned by another LLC from Delaware. So to get to the actual beneficial owner, it's impossible to find out. But sometimes it's a lot more simple than that. 
Our next story is a little bit different than the others because it revolves around an employee simply stealing. It was an alternative fuel startup company, natural gas company. Um, and there were two young guys my age who started it and they had done really well. But the board wanted them to put in a controller that the board trusted. A controller is someone who handles the accounting, payroll, accounts payables, accounts receivables. They oversee cash flow. So they put in this, this woman who came in and from day one started stealing money from the company. Uh, and they came to us to, to figure out what had happened. Two 30-year-old guys that have poured their, their lives into building this thing and then they find out that, you know, uh, someone that they didn't really want to hire had stolen, you know, $4 million. She used the money for everything from paying off credit card bills to buying her son new wheels for his Jeep Wrangler. The only reason the owners ever found out about it was because they were about to be acquired. And the company that was acquiring was like, uh, where's all the cash that you're supposed to have in the bank? How did you end up figuring it all out? It was pretty obvious. Um, I've worked on a lot of these smaller cases where, you know, a couple million dollars are stolen from a company that can't afford that. And it usually comes down to the fact that the owners or the principals aren't paying attention to their actual bank statements or, or what they have in cash, right? They're looking at financial statements that are provided to them. And if the person creating the financial statements is the one doing the stealing, well, then you have a problem. I don't pay any attention really to start with what the QuickBooks says or what the accounting records say. I look at the bank statements. And in this instance, the controller had been uh, doing Adobe Photoshop to the bank statements and changing like, you know, a $200 payment to her American Express card. She would copy over the PDF and put that it was for the purchase to Home Depot, right? So when Austin looked at both statements side by side, it's like he said before. It was blaringly obvious. Mm -hmm. But the owners never thought to, you know, look at the bank statement straight from the bank. They, they got what she prepared and looked at it and it made sense. All right, I've kept you waiting long enough. Roll the divorce. The most interesting probably and one of my least favorites is the billionaire divorce case that I was telling you about in, uh, in Canada. I did a whole bunch of research, and I could not figure out who this was actually about. This guy was uh, getting a divorce from his high school sweetheart. He owned a company that uh, basically produced all the parts for Blackberries when Blackberries were, were the phone of choice. And he was kind of a Howard Hughes-esque guy, right? He had his own back door into his office. No one ever saw him. He kept really low-key. I don't think you can find a picture of him online, but it turned into a really nasty battle because his wife left him for his CFO, who was his best friend. It was a down and dirty fight. He even tried to cryogenically freeze himself so she couldn't take his assets. He pressed a fraud suit against her. She pressed a pedophile suit against him. It was just every day it was different um, and it was, uh, it was intense uh, and interesting. And I was, you know, flying from Buenos Aires to Montreal to have meetings. And uh, I mean, I think it's still going on and it's been like 10 years. Austin's job was figuring out how a $100 million loan was actually spent. This guy had given his wife a $100 million interest-free loan to buy property in Florida. She bought property, built a huge shopping mall and development, but at the same time, then left the husband and, and uh, went with the CFO, and the CFO was running the business in, in Florida. So I was basically tasked with, uh, you know, finding out how that $100 million was used, whether it was misappropriated, whether it was going to be paid back, kind of uh, digging into that. 
there was a lot of things that, that came along the way, uh, supporting a lot of its litigation support, just helping the lawyers come up with, you know, uh, evidence for things that are being claimed if they're legitimate. So not your, not your typical forensic accounting case. My level and what I do now with corporations, if we get, you know, two layers in and I can't figure out who owns something, like we cut off the relationship. My job's not really to like find out and prove that something's wrong. Uh, it's to say, okay, we're not moving forward with this because there's a risk. It's the age-old saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. The ultimate goal of forensic accounting and the ultimate end product usually is some kind of report that can be used in court, either as an expert witness or a damage claim or to be provided to the SEC or DOJ. And forensic accounting, you need the support behind that report to back it up. You know, one of the things that you have to learn as a fraud investigator is that you don't make the conclusion, right? You find the evidence, you present it, and you say, okay, yes, money was taken here, but whether that's embezzlement or fraud or some other kind of violation, I basically write reports and say what happened. You might not find the technical terms and the paperwork and the numbers all that interesting, but hopefully you found the stories interesting. And hopefully through these stories, you were able to learn something about forensic accounting that you didn't need to know. I know I certainly did. And honestly, forensic accountant seems like a pretty sweet job. You're basically a detective. And as I know from all my favorite 70s movies, that's the coolest job of all time. Thanks for listening. Things You Don't Need to Know is a hyperobject and Three Uncanny 4 production. The show is written and edited by me, Ari Kagan, and produced by Harry Nelson and also me. Additional help from Nina Sharafdin and Shane McKeon. Our executive producers are Adam McKay and Laura Mayer. The show is mixed by nice manners. If you like things you don't need to know, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could leave a review, just please leave a review. I'm pretty sure Harry got sick of recording these end cab pieces, so. Anyway, see you next week.